Hello, I'm Vlad Maximov, and welcome to the next installment of your active series on cohesion policy, where we explore the European Union's project to decrease the disparities between its regions and increase social, economic, and territorial cohesion. In this episode, we'll look at how the cohesion policy contributes to protecting the environment and tackling climate change. We will take a closer look at what the next seven years hold compared to the previous budgetary period of 2014-2020 and see what's in store for Europe's regions when it comes to greening. To ask for the perspective of European regions and cities in the midst of the energy transition, we spoke to the director of the Energy Cities Association, Claire Rumi. On top of that, we have a very special guest with us today, Kira Taylor, your active's very own energy and environment reporter. Hi, Kira. Hi, great to be here. So let's dive in. Claire, could you just quickly give us a description of what you do at uh, Energy Cities and what is uh, your mission? Energy Cities is a network of cities across EU. More than uh, thousands of cities are uh, in our membership. Small cities, medium cities, capital cities. Uh, there is no real uh, kind of pattern in terms of uh, who are the members and uh, who is, is part of the community. Uh, what mission we have is really to empower cities and citizens to shape the transition to future-proof cities. So what we do concretely is showcase concrete alternatives that are deployed by cities. We advocate a lot to change the politic and the economic governance at all levels to make sure that indeed cities can do their, their transformation. And we foster the wide cultural change leading to a future-proof society. So clearly, you know, cities are at the forefront of your work, but also here in Brussels, quite often we hear that cities are the main drivers of the energy transition. So could you just give us, you know, an insight why that is the case? Why are the cities so important for the Europe's green ambitions? Cities are uh, absolutely the key to the transition. They are the key of one transition. They are not the key for all kind of transition. This is also why it's extremely important that uh, they are vocal now, because whether they will be or not part of the transition will design the kind of transition we will do. It is uh, said that it is possible to do a completely uh, technocentric uh, transition where we will just switch the current uh, energy flows that are basically linked only to fossil fuel to something that will be green or greener and uh, that then there is no need to change anything about the way we, we live just to switch from one energy stream to another energy source. So that we don't believe. We believe that actually not only that will not be possible, but uh, also that uh, the transition we want is a transition that is really uh, embedded into uh, making sure that uh, every territories can uh, have a sustainable development, can have its own wealth creation and shared at local level. So the transition is really something that is a kind of an opportunity. And why cities are so important is because there is only three ways to really manage to get to the 1.5 degree or 2 degrees or even a little bit more to meet the Paris Agreement is to reduce drastically the needs. And reducing our needs can only happen if we are doing everything that can be done at local level 
locally and that we don't continue to have a ma massive exchange uh, of goods and products uh, all over the place, all over the world. So, And to reduce our needs, it's also about making sure that indeed you can tap on the potential waste of one company that can become the resource of another company. So to, to really like uh, optimize the flows of resources used uh, at local level. So on heat, for, for sure, if we want to have fossil-free districts, that can only be done at local level and that will be happening. So what we say, why it's so important that it's uh, cities and that they are at the forefront today, it's because if you look at uh, the future you want, and if you want a future that indeed the wealth created by the transition is shared at local level, and that this is really done within the planet boundaries, it's drastic reduction of everything we produce and uh, all the waste we produce in, in particular, but it's also renewable energy at local level. So the lowest the distance is in between the need and uh, the supply, uh, the best it is for the metabolism of the city. So it, it's really because of that that uh, you can't imagine to have anything done without the, the cities. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Uh, I, I really like how you talked about, you know, we can't just focus uh, on the energy transition, but really, um, if I understood correctly, the transition needs to be holistic and localized. Uh, so I think then my next question is, sometimes these big words like holistic transition, uh, no one left behind, these uh, are quite hard to translate to policy action. Do you think there's any kind of transition in sort of the way the European Union is starting to approach this transition from the previous period to this one? Or are we still mostly talking about switching from carbon burning to uh, to greener sources uh, sources of energy? I think we are just like in between. It's like in between uh, the old way, old-fashioned way of doing things, uh, which in that case would be uh, to look at uh, project sector by sector, to have a huge budget line on energy efficiency that is not directly linked to renewable production, for example, or indeed to have this holistic approach. So we can really see that uh, I think inside uh, any institution today, there is the old-fashioned way it's like the usual way. It's not even the, the old-fashioned. It's like the usual way is is in constant fight with like uh, the reality that is indeed needed today, which is to have another approach. So we see that in the current new funding period, so the the budget for that is starting uh, next year till 2027, there is really a lot of new uh, budget lines that are um, having this holistic approach. W one very good example is the Mission Climate Neutral Cities. So this is in the new research program, so the Horizon Europe program. They have decided to have five missions, which basically are challenges that cannot be solved by only one sector or by by like uh, the, the traditional way of doing things. Like, uh, let's say we will invest massively on chemicals and then we will discover the solution for the cancer. So no, this, this cannot happen only like that. And indeed, we need complete new 
thinking and new way of doing things. And this is what will be also done for climate neutral cities. So climate neutral cities it will be a mission that will be uh, launched at the beginning of uh, next year. And it's really a even a district approach. It's, it's saying one big city saying, I will become climate neutral in 2030. And therefore, I will basically change the entire way the mobility is sought. I will change the way the production is uh, done. I will change the way the buildings are uh, connected or not connected with each other and with other sectors like uh, the digital or um, or the energy. I will uh, change the way we are working also in those uh, um, urban areas uh, because it has massive impact and if we want to become climate neutral we need to think about the way we live the way we heat the way we are mobile and the way we work in those environments so this, i think this is really an extremely promising way but it's not the only example there is also the example of the just transition fund it's something that was really um, has been pushed uh, by us, but not only by by some MEPs during the previous um, legislative period, and that because it's a right approach, it's a territorial approach that really is trying to have a comprehensive plan. So this is a plan for a region, but it's not an administrative region. It's not a sectorial region. It's a region that is heavily dependent on one industry and that needs to rethink its own future. And all different actors will need to be basically part of the solution and change the way uh, the entire region is working. Because usually it's like when you have one mine, uh, you have uh, not only the coal workers, but you have the entire economy that is linked to uh, this one mine, mining uh, um, or two or three uh, uh, companies that are in the region. So you, you really need to have a, an entire future for that uh, area. And mining is a good example because in mining you can do a, lo a lot of geothermal energy workers in in mine in the mining sector they are also extremely skilled and you can use that skills for other flows it's not only about uh, extracting uh, coal so there is a lot of things that are possible but the only good thing is indeed to say okay this is a trans this is a massive transition so we need to embark absolutely everybody so Kira, we've heard Claire say that, you know, we shouldn't be just looking at this whole greening environmental transition uh, from a technocratic point of view and only be looking at energy sources, swapping fossil fuels to uh, renewables, but we should be looking at it more holistically from the city's perspective. What's your take on it? Is there like a priority list or, uh, you know, we have to be doing both at the same time? Yeah, I mean, if I can plug our section of the website, if you go onto it, you can see how complicated and how many topics we cover. Yes, energy is a huge part. I mean, the burning of fossil fuels produces CO2 and that is uh, causing climate change. But you also have things like energy efficiency. And if you have better energy efficiency, you reduce the amount of energy that you need at all. You have things like recycling and reusing, and that's coming through in the Commission's circular economy plan. And obviously, if you're reusing material, you're not needing things like um, oil to create plastic. And so again, you're reusing stuff, you're reducing waste, you're reducing pollution. So it's a huge, huge topic. 
and just looking at energy sources will not solve climate change. Another sort of budget line that falls into the same category is the so-called sustainable urban development. I think for a layman person to understand what this really means, it is a very vague term. Could you tell us a little bit why is sustainable development important and why is it important that it got bumped up from 6 to 8% of the total ERDF to CF budget? The ERDF and CF, or the European Regional Development and Cohesion Funds, are the classical tools of the EU's cohesion policy. Between 2021 and 2027, they will disperse 242.9 billion euros with the aim of reducing social and economic disparities between European regions. There is a lot of different budget lines that are available for cities transition. So this is uh, the sustainable urban development. I w- I'm sorry to say that I'm not being I will not be able to really dis- describe it to you <laughs> because it's a concept <laughs> that I never uh-huh. really liked because actually it's still an old thinking mm-hmm. in a sense that um, I think that the, the concept for me that speaks more it's a circular city. Also, the sustainable urban development means that you have uh, to to make sure that there is a big social cohesion uh, dimension to your plans. Uh, But uh, in a circular city, we also think that indeed there will be a a lot of job opportunities because circular means indeed a city that is able to... Let's say that the way I would like to define sustainable urban development would be to say that it's a high quality of life uh, within the planet boundaries, so which is usually not really encompassed in sustainable urban development is that there is a limit. And I think this is what has changed from past period, budget period, budgetary period, to this new period. The past period was still really, really looking at this development. Now, I don't think we could speak about development anymore in the sense that there is really a limit. And this is what Paris told us. The Paris Agreement, uh, what it says is that in 2050, we need to be climate neutral. That's what it translates. And this, not only for climate, but also to make sure that indeed we don't completely overshoot other resources. So there is a limit, and this is a change. And this is, I think, the, the way to see also all policies. And for me, the mission climate neutral city is exactly that also. It's to say there is a limit. We, we know where is our landing point, our common landing point. And then every territory needs to find its own trajectory, its own path to reach that point. But the point is clear. In 2050, you will have to have reached the climate neutrality on the entire metabolism of the city. So everything that the, the citizen consume, the citizen um, produce on the city should be really climate neutral. And within the planet boundaries, so it's not only about CO2, but it's also about all uh, resources. So this is something that, has, uh, for me, it's, it's very new. And, and it's Paris Agreement that gave that new kind of landscape. And this is what we can see that is now translating not completely entirely. It's like everybody understood, but it's not everywhere still on every budget line. To come back on to why it's important that there is this budget line and of 
8%, and it's a very big success for all cities networks to have managed this 8% in comparison to the six that were uh, before on the cohesion fund uh, previous period. It's because, unfortunately, so far, the way the cohesion policy has been conceived from the very beginnings of decades ago, it was uh, really uh, linked to the regional development and managing authorities are still not open to share the power on decision and to share the power on design of the structural funds uh, operational plan with the city. So it's a power they have. Most of the time, they are not ready. So it's there is a lot of fights. And the fact that there is a 8% um, obligation gives to the city at least a kind of a minimum access to those funds, which is Sometimes it works well, huh? but uh, it's often the case that there is a big, huge power game in between the territories. Yes, I can imagine that this is particularly problematic in uh, EU member states where the opposition and the government might not be on speaking terms like in Hungary or Poland. Exactly. Yeah, it's a huge uh, power bargain also indeed. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that there are a lot of different budget lines. We've spoken about this uh, sustainable urban development and, you know, there is the REACT EU that also has a t- climate target and there is a JTF, uh, the Just Transition Fund that you mentioned. Uh, and it seems to go on and on and on. And I think one of the concerns that I often hear from uh, from mayors and anyone who has to do anything with cohesion uh, is that we had so much paperwork already. Now you're throwing all of these resources at us and expect us to implement all of these things. Where are we supposed to get the capacity and how are we supposed to get uh, get all of this done in time? Uh, the final deadline, of course, being the 2050 climate neutrality goal. So uh, what's your take on this? How how are cities equipped to deal with this? And are we investing enough to into capacity building? No, definitely this is a complete clear no. And today there is always a big fight to get more and more and more funding. But the truth is that even before, in, even before the, this new uh, bu- um, budget period, the absorption rates of uh, the climate uh, budget line part of the of, of the budget was not uh, high. Why? Because actually there is no investment into capacity building of local authorities. And it's also because in that case, there is a real, real mismatch in between economic and reform policy. And we really hope that that can be also lifted out because there is a big difference in between the reform agenda of the economic semester uh, that uh, after the financial crisis has been really insisting in making sure that uh, the public debt, which includes municipal debt ratio, was the lowest possible. And a lot of member states are actually used municipal debt as a way to reduce their own debt. And they have not really changed the, the it at federal level. They, they really put all the pressure on the municipal debt. But not only that, I mean, so this is, for example, this is clear, clear. But in that, in the case of the recovery fund, it will not be debt, it will be grants. So there is not even uh, this kind of uh, obstacle for local authorities not being able 
to invest more because of, of the debt ratio. But there will be a huge, huge uh, problem because they have been reducing their own uh, administrative capacity in general as a way to basically become good government. So the good government was main, mainly saying that uh, local authorities uh, should uh, have less and less and less uh, employee, uh, which to an extent that today there is nobody that can just even only sign a paper to say, yes, this project is good. Because you still need to have a kind of a control on what's going on at local level in a sense of, uh, does is this project making sense or is this project not making sense? You cannot know if you don't have uh, the, the local authorities on board or if you don't uh, have uh, local stakeholders on board. So this is, needs to be organized. I think that the commission will, will go into a very huge problem of absorption rates uh, because it has reduced the capacity of authorities in general, whether they are national, regional, local level. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. This vicious cycle of wanting better fiscal health and how that is then linked, of course, uh, lacking uh, lacking capacity to then implement the policies that, that we all need. Um, that's a, actually a very good point. You've been talking about low absorption of funds uh, for uh, climate action and green projects. Uh, there's been, um, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Cree and Cree Plus initiatives, you know, that loosened some of the cohesion rules at the beginning of the coronavirus crisis. So some of the unspent uh, cash uh, that uh, would have uh, would have had to come back to Brussels could be used by the regions as sort of this rapid response mechanism. Uh, and uh, it turns out that a lot of these funds then that, that could be rebudgeted and reallocated to different things were actually budgeted away from energy efficiency and other green projects towards what we usually could expect, a generic SME support, cheaper loans, access to capital, all of these kind of type of things. Are you worried that this trend is going to continue? So we are going to, you know, hit the bare minimum mandated targets, but it's going to be done at last second as long as this, uh, as this crisis lasts because uh, economic recovery will become a priority? It's a big concern and it's a big concern because when you need to basically make sure that uh, your uh, engine doesn't stop, which is really now you need to fuel and you fuel with whatever you have <laughs> in whatever direction, basically. So this is what this is the moment we are now. And it's very worrying because it's also a missed opportunities. But we are well aware because, I mean, mayors, they are on a daily basis on into this kind of complexity. The solution of the future are really something which are basically, they are small, integrated, complex projects at local level. The problem is that all our funding streams are designed for one big, huge pipeline. That's easy. You have two operators, one big company that does liabilities all over the world, and, and, and you know what you will put into the pipe, even if the pipe can stay stuck for, for years, like in the Nord Streams, into geopolitical um, uh, debates. But it, it's an easy thing. It's an easy object. And it's huge amount of money. So in that case, in terms of absorption rate, you, you tick on many boxes. But this will not be the projects that we need for the future. We will need some 
of the big projects, but very, very few. What we will need is a lot, a lot, a lot of fragmented, smaller initiatives because it's basically in every place. You need to make every place future-proofed. And it means every every place, every square, every district that needs to have its own transformation with all the local actors involved. So this is why you need to also design the funding streams completely differently. So Kira, we've heard Claire speak about absorption capacity, right? This ability to actually soak up this money and have a good project pipeline, the favorite uh, uh, technical term of the commission, I think. Um, what do you think about this? Are we Should we be concerned that uh, municipalities and regional authorities will just not be able to, even with the best intentions, to implement all of this money on time? I'm not sure anyone would go so far as to say that the commission is just throwing money at the problem. A lot of this has been carefully thought out and there are climate standards and climate targets. However, there isn't the pipeline of projects for many of these things. I was talking to someone about building renovation the other day, and they just don't have this pipeline of projects that are ready to be funded. So with this huge amount of money, they're concerned that this will either go to less ambitious programs or just not be able to be properly absorbed. You then have the issue that COVID-19 requires a huge amount of local government effort so these civil servants are being drafted away from maybe permitting uh, wind farms. That's what we've heard from people like Wind Europe is a concern that permitting processes, which are already really slow, uh, will be even more impacted by COVID. And then you're putting a lot of money towards this. So I agree there probably is a concern that the money may not be spent as efficiently as it could be. The commission is not ready and because they, they fear about um, corruption. That's what I was going to ask. You know, you've been talking about so many different uh, small projects and I do write about the corruption in Central Eastern Europe and that was the first thought I had. Well, the thing is that when you, you, you do big projects, the corruption is much bigger. I know that it is always the argument against going into small things because, yeah, yeah, you will give it to your friends. Well, actually, maybe if you just give it to your friends on doing a small thing, it will be still better than trying to fuel a kind of a wood, huge mafia, as it is the case currently in some of the, the cities in the northern Romania, for example. So, I mean, this is not an argument already, but even if it was, I think that it's not because we should really uh, also uh, uh, completely change the way we, we design the, the, the transparency rules. Today, the Commission wants to see everything and is accountable for everything. This cannot continue with the trillions of trillions that have been put on the table and that uh, currently the way the European Commission has been organizing itself, it's in, in one unit to overlook on the 27 recovery fund plans. This is insane. This will never happen. I mean, this is not feasible. What has been working very well in cities is that they have in many places, like in Lisbon has been the first one to implement a participatory municipal budget. This is typically the kind of, exa of examples or instruments that we could have said, this will all go to the friends of the mayor. It's not true, because if you make it extremely transparent, then, and with strict rules, with an expert committee, you, at the contrary, do finance locally what makes sense. 
and what people want to do and not what uh, you want people to do. This is completely different. Everywhere where a participatory budget, municipal budget has been put in place, it always worked extremely well. Most of the projects proposed and, and, and getting the finance were always linked to climate and to the transition most of them because it's about gardening it's about uh, cycle pass it's it's about uh, water management it's always extremely local and extremely linked to the climate uh, transition the regional funds in general have done a massive impact on not always the good things because it's true that they have done a lot of SMEs or um, uh, development which might not be needed but on the climate issue it really it really triggered new ways of doing things at local level. Well, let's certainly hope so. And let's hope that the commission will heed some of the calls I think I hear coming from the cities to decentralize even more the shared management funds and actually share the management with those who are ultimately the final recipients. Well, thank you so much, Claire. So Kira, Claire was talking about, you know, the territorial approach and how important it is to really look at the different regions and see uh, Europe not just as a whole and not just as its member states, but really the different parts within the member states, uh, the different regions. So from your perspective uh, as an environment and climate reporter, uh, what are the differences between the different regions of Europe if we are looking at it sort of geospatially? So there are huge differences. I mean, some of the Western, more richer member states have been using renewables for much, much longer. So they already have things like offshore winds um, and they have that set up. For Central and Eastern Europe, they have been much more reliant on coal. And that obviously means that they have coal mines, they have jobs in those areas. So that's partly what the Just Transition Fund is looking at doing, is getting those jobs away from that. And I think that means that when these countries are looking at moving away from things like coal, it's more than just an environment issue. It's social, it's political, you know, whether you'll get voted in again if you do this. It was interesting in what Claire said, because uh, talking about uh, coal mines becoming geothermal, I've heard about that before, and it's, it's quite an interesting idea. Uh, Central and Eastern Europe actually have quite a big potential for geothermal. Um, at the moment, it's mostly just used for water parks, um, but what it, it could be a huge um, renewable energy source for them. The Green Deal is on top of everyone's agenda nowadays, and there are so many green targets that are impossible to follow for a layperson, but to be honest, even I am lost in them sometimes. Overall, would you say that the cohesion policy is greener today than in the past? I think you have to look at the whole commission. They are being the most ambitious they have ever been. You saw last year that all member states signed up to a minus 55% greenhouse gas reduction by 2030. That was unprecedented. We did not expect to see that much push so quickly after the Green Deal. However, there are issues, I think, when you say it's the most ambitious, it's the most ambitious it could be. Because when you read between the lines, there are these smaller sort of <laughs> tradings, I guess. Uh, say when you look at the cohesion policy, yes, some of that money is uh, for the climate, and some of it is covered by do no significant harm, which limits the influence of fossil fuel in it. But what countries and member states could do 
is reshuffle their own policies. So say you can't have a fossil fuel policy under the Commission's funding, you could just put that into your own country funding and actually have a different policy, a greening policy within the Commission's funding or within the cohesion policy. One of the most, uh, I think, controversial issues that we've had uh, surrounding green financing and cohesion policy was the funding of gas. And the solution to that was not funding uh, gas under the Just Transition Fund with its 17.5 billion euros, but instead allowing gas funding in the regional and cohesion funds. Uh, what's your take on that? What were the biggest uh, sticking points in this debate, Kira? I think gas is the real issue at the moment because it does show the disparity between member states. Some countries have been looking at renewable energy for decades and some like Poland are very reliant on coal still. So what the Commission sees is that gas is a caveat. It needs to help those member states who are more reliant on fossil fuel to transition towards renewables. Uh, what we saw with the JTF and the ERDF is this compromise that the German presidency found between the parliament and the council's position. Uh, so yeah, no, no gas funding in the JTF. Uh, there was a um, last minute push to get uh, district heating, gas through district heating, and that's one of the loopholes, I guess you could say, for gas at the moment is um, through district heating systems. What then happened was the um, commission redrafted it and said district heating has to be from renewables. So JTF is, is gas free. The ERDF is a bit more complicated. So there is some allowance for fossil gas until 2025, uh, but it needs to meet the do no significant harm uh, criteria, which is laid out in the taxonomy, the sustainable finance criteria. It's very complicated, lots of numbers, um, but it does limit fossil gas. So, you know, Kira, I don't uh, cover energy and environment topics uh, directly. I do indirectly through cohesion and some of uh, my Western Balkans coverage. But it's very hard for me to comprehend with, uh, you know, insufficient technical knowledge. How realistic are these claims coming from the commission that we hear over and over again that investing in gas infrastructure is not only good because, you know, maybe there are less emissions, but also because the infrastructure can be used later on for uh, more uh, environmentally friendly uh, uh, energy sources such as hydrogen. How realistic is this claim that gas assets can be used uh, for uh, green things in the future? Well, firstly, I think the, the thing to remember is that gas has a very different role in the Commission's eyes to other fossil fuels. So it's very different to coal, and unlike coal, it doesn't produce these air pollution, which is what you have in Poland. It's a real issue there. So the idea of hydrogen-ready infrastructure is basically that within the next 20 to 30 years, we're going to be much, much more reliant on hydrogen uh, because it is a renewable gas, depending on what you use to create it. If you use renewable energy, it's a renewable gas. Um, and that's what we call green hydrogen. There's lots of different colors. It's like a rainbow of hydrogen. But anyway, <laughs> Wait, let me um, butt in there, because how do you even produce hydrogen in a renewable way for us non-environmental uh, non, uh, non people? <laughs> So first of all, I'm, I'm not a scientist, <laughs> but you uh, produce it by electrolysis. And depending what electricity you use for the electrolysis, that 
will mean whether it's renewable or not. So if you're using uh, electricity produced by a wind turbine or by solar panels, it's going to be renewable. Mm -hmm. The idea of hydrogen-ready infrastructure uh, is looking at these existing pipelines and uh, looking at blending natural gas with uh, hydrogen, probably in the, the first few years at least, um, and using it to, to transport hydrogen. Um, I mean, the commission is saying that retrofitting these uh, existing pipelines will be far cheaper than just building them up. And often you see this as a loophole for gas funding. You know, these um, places are saying, well, we can fund this infrastructure, we can build this infrastructure, and at some point it will carry hydrogen. But what NGOs are saying is, well, yes, that's fine, but at the moment it's going to be carrying natural gas. And their concern is that if you keep building this infrastructure, you're going to lock Europe into natural gas. And I think that's, uh, I mean, there's other issues with Nord Stream 2, but obviously with that gas coming in, they're saying, well, how are we going to get out of this? So in the future, it's going to depend on how we actually produce this hydrogen. How is the majority of the hydrogen produced today? Is it mostly coming from fossil fuels? Yeah, so about over 90% is coming from fossil fuels at the moment. And that's another concern with this hydrogen-ready infrastructure, is that it really depends on what is producing that hydrogen. And at the moment, that is fossil fuels. So thanks so much, Kira, for joining me. I was lonely before. Thanks for having me. It's great to bore more people with gas. <laughs> and unfortunately, that was it for today. To find out more about the latest developments in cohesion, take a look at our regional policy coverage at euroactive.com and also check out Kira's coverage. This has been Vlad Maximov. Thank you for listening. And until next time. This podcast is part of Euroactive's project Let's Meet Cohesion Policy, a journey through regions, challenges and success stories, funded by the European Union. This publication reflects only the views of the author. The European Commission is not responsible for any use that may be made of the information it contains.